great. Well, to get things started this morning, I'm going to ask us to go back in time. Um, for some of you, you're going to have to go back maybe just a week or so, or maybe a little longer. For those of you, you're going to have to go back several decades, okay? So I want you to think back. <laughs> I want you to think back to the last time you had to take a test, okay? Like I said, for some of you, this was last week. For some of you, this was last century. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, technically, yeah, right? It was in the 1900s. Um, that just sounds so bad. Um, but think about the last test you had to take. And, and for some of you, the, the minute I even bring up like a test, you're just like, because there's generally two groups of people. There's people that are test takers that enjoy taking tests. I kind of fell into that category. I like taking tests mostly just because I knew if we were having a test like in a particular class, I'm like, that's all we're doing today. Like, sweet. Especially in exams, it's like, I'm going home early. This is great. Then there's other people that like, you had to take a test and it's just like, like just anxiety where it's like, I know all this information, but whenever it comes time to like do it, I'm like, I can't, I just, I can't, right? Um, and so no matter what category you fall into with that, uh, tests are part of, um, they're, they're part of the educational process, right? It's, it's part of school, but the reality is, is while you may have not taken a test like that in a long, 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 long time, uh, tests don't stop whenever we get done with school. Um, tests are a part of life. Life tests you. Uh, faith tests you oftentimes as well. But when we think about a test, usually we, we think of kind of like the school version, uh, right? And, and a definition for that is a short written or spoken examination of a person's proficiency or knowledge, right? It's like, okay, what do you know? What do you know? <laughs> what do you know? But like there, there are more definitions. Listen, listen to some of these. This is going to get at what we're, we're talking about today. A test is the means by which the presence quality or genuineness of anything is determined. Test is a procedure intended to establish the quality, the performance, or the reliability of something, especially before it's taken into widespread use. And finally, a test is an event or a situation that reveals the strength or the quality of someone or something by putting them under strain. Basically, a test, it boils down to, tests determine what something's made of and can it be trusted. Right? Anytime we test anything, we're like, okay, what, what, what's in this? What's it made of? Can it be trusted? Will it hold up? Will it stand the test of time? That's a test. And yes, some of that is involved with education, right? Like, what is, this, is this education? Like, are you actually learning anything? We don't know. And sometimes the test really doesn't even determine that, but that's another conversation. Um, but like, are you like, it, but, the, but when it comes to life, it's like, okay, are you, you going to be able to, what, what are you made of? Can you make it? Are you going to be all right? When it comes to faith, you believe this. Is it, is it real? Does it last? That's kind of where we're going in our conversation today. We're wrapping up the series we've been in, Faithful. We've been in this series since the beginning of the year, um, talking about this idea that uh, as followers of Jesus, or if you're considering the Christian faith, it's like what we need is big, bold faith. And faith is not, as we've talked about, just blind belief. It's not optimism. It's not a hopefulness that faith has an object. Uh, and in Christianity, the object of our faith is a person. His name is Jesus. And so when we say we want you to have faith, we're saying we want to say, Jesus, I trust you no matter what. Whatever you ask, wherever you call me, you're like, I'm, I am in. Let's go. Like, that is faith. It, it is it's trust. And we've said that like, the goal is for us to have a, a follow Jesus kind of faith, not just a believe in Jesus kind of faith. Not just I believe, like, there's some facts that I think I know, but rather, like, every aspect of my life, I'm following him, I'm pursuing him. It changes everything about who I am in every single arena. Uh, and there have been several catalysts that kind of, like, spark that that we're talking about. So I want to go over those real quick. I'm not going to go into too much detail. You can always go back and check those out online if you've missed any of those. Um, but they are 
uh, practical teaching. One of the things that grows our faith is like I'm in an environment where the, the scripture is being taught in a way that I understand, that makes sense, that's put in the proper context, and then I know I got to respond to it. I know what to do with what's being taught. We talk about personal ministry, that Jesus is up to some things in the world. He's doing stuff. He's changing things. And if you're his follower, he looks at you and he's like, I want you to come be a part of that. Come be a part of what I'm doing. I'm going to use you. And you're like, but I'm just so little. I don't have anything to use. He's like, I know that's the point, but just watch what I do with it. We talk about how big of a, a role um, relationships play in faith for people to spur us on toward love and good works. Uh, last week, Pastor Paul, who's our, our disciplines pastor, apparently, <laughs> okay, just, just saying, like, that's, that's not actually been planned. It just kind of happens that way. So it's funny, right? Paul, uh, Paul talked about personal spiritual disciplines, those things where it's like, oh, I ought to do this, and it's just kind of like painful at first, but eventually ought to becomes want to, and I, I desire to do these things, and they connect me with my Heavenly Father. Today, we're wrapping it up uh, with pivotal circumstances. And yes, like I said before, they all start with a P because that's how we roll. Um, but basically, a pivotal circumstance is those moments of testing. It's those times when, when, when our, our faith is put under strain, and it's like, okay, like what, what's going to happen here? When people talk about their faith and their faith growing and what God has done in their lives, usually there's some aspect of... You know, there was this one time, there was this season of life, there was this moment, there was this event, there was this thing, it was disruptive, uh, it, it was catalytic, it was defining. And sometimes pivotal circumstances, sometimes they're positive. You know, sometimes it's like, hey, I got this new job opportunity that moved me to a different city and like this was a circumstance and, and God did something through that and I met some people and I, my, my faith came alive. Sometimes a pivotal circumstance can be, um, you know, something like, like a child being born where it's like, wow, like my faith came alive because there was like this... This is a crazy thing, you guys. They just hand you a living human and tell you to go home, right? You know, like for those of you that are parents in the room, when you had your first kids, like, here you go. And you're like, sure, you sure about this, right? And so sometimes it's like, I don't know, I got to find some people. Maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I need God. And so sometimes that can be something that causes faith to come alive. Those are positive things. But most often, and you probably already know where I'm going with this, these end up being painful. Those pivotal circumstances end up being things that hurt that are difficult, that are uncomfortable, that, that, that it's like, when, wow, life just happened. Life hit the fan. I'm just going to leave it at that, right? Like, it's just, like, these things, and, and when, when, when we go through those, so often you'll hear this, this kind of idea said, I would never wish that on anyone. I, wouldn't, I would not choose that again, but God used it. He did something. Um, and for some of you, like, I, I know you well enough, and we've talked. Like, I know this is your story. And you've talked about, like, here's where I was, and here's where I am now, and it was horrible, but, man, did God show up. And for some of you, you're in the middle of some stuff right now. And it's been my experience in different parts of my faith as well, but there's something about, it's like, this, I don't, I don't want this, but God can use it. And one of the things that I love about the Christian faith, and one of the things I love about, like, the, the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament, is they don't try to hide this. They don't, like, try to clean this, th this up, like, this tension between we believe that there's a good and a loving God. He's revealed himself in Jesus. Like, he died for us. He loves us. He's got a plan for us. Like, he, he's made a way to, like, back to him. But yet, at the same time, life is hard, and it's difficult, and there's pain, and, and there's loss, and there's grief. And again, the authors of the New Testament are, like, they just kind of put both of those things there and go, we're not going to try to, like, reconcile this. You know, sometimes we believe there's a conflict between those two. But to them, they're like, no, the, the two actually, they go together. Because those moments of pain remind us that something isn't how it's supposed to be, and he came to fix it. And, and so, you know, the authors of the New Testament, for them, it's personal. Injustice and suffering and persecution and physical pain and uh, imprisonment, and yet they cling to this idea of the faithfulness and the goodness of Jesus. And so I want to look at that idea this morning. 
couple passages of scripture. Uh, the first one's going to kind of set things up. And uh, this is um, James, the little brother of Jesus, who, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, didn't believe his brother was the son of God or the Messiah, and then Jesus died and rose from the dead, and James is like, okay, I was wrong, right? And so James becomes a follower of Jesus. He becomes a leader in the early church. Um, he kind of becomes the leader over the church in Jerusalem, uh, and he, he writes one letter. We have it as the book of James, and he says something very, very instructive right at the beginning of his letter. The, the second verse of the letter sets up really the context for the rest of it, and James is speaking to a group of Christians in the first century that are facing all kinds of hardship and persecution. James himself would eventually be murdered for his faith and what he believed. And so he opens his letter by saying this, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Consider it a great joy or pure joy. And I gotta say, when I read that, I don't know that there is a time in my life where things were difficult and things were hard when I was just like, yes, like, this is awesome. Like, so, yeah, like, praise the Lord. My life is horrible right now. Like, like that's not our initial response. Because the natural response is, is awful. It's terrible. It's painful. And this is just kind of one of the things that surfaced as I was preparing this. I'm like, you know, basically everything about the Christian life and Christian existence, whether it's how we face difficulties or how we think about our feelings and our emotions and our desires and what we do, like, everything about being a follower of Jesus is really to say, yeah, but... I'm not going to pursue what comes natural. Like, I'm living out of this idea of, like, the supernatural now. Like, it's, it's what Jesus has done. It's his spirit living in me. And so considering it pure joy, that doesn't come natural. It's a process that comes over time. And as James is going to kind of, kind of poke at this idea, that this, he says, consider it. It's, it's going to be a matter of perspective. How do we see this? How do we respond to this? Because everyone, regardless of belief, regardless of stage of life, regardless of where you live in the world or when you live in history, everyone will experience trials. Everyone will experience testing. The question becomes, what do we do with that? And, and, and I love that he also, he says, like, various trials. Because the reality is, like, sometimes, sometimes there's those once or twice in a lifetime things that are like, yeah, I, I, I was not the same person after that happened. You know what I mean? Like, but, but. Sometimes, like, those happen. Those are usually a few in a lifetime. And yes, he's talking about those, but he's also talking about the various trials of everyday life. Because sometimes it's just like, it's just a Tuesday, right? And that person's annoying me, and my kids are doing that, and this is going on at work. And so whether it's the daily mundane kind of trials to the big, like, life-shattering things, he's like, there's a way that you can see those and experience those to where you can actually see them through the perspective and the lens of joy. He says, I want, I want you to consider it uh, pure joy or great joy because there's a reason why. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And, and so he's like, there's something that you know because, again, this is, this is about perspective. There's something that either you do know currently or that you can know, something that you can learn, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or, or some translations will say perseverance. Um, that, that the testing of your faith, it produces specifically a faith that endures, a faith that perseveres. Because again, faith is not simply, uh, it's not hope, it's not blind belief, it's a trust in a person, the person of Jesus. And so he's getting at this idea that we can, we can come to a point in faith where it's like, I, I trust who Jesus is and what he has done and what I know of him and what I've seen of him. And I trust in the life, death, resurrection. I trust in my personal experience with him. I trust what scripture says about him in spite of what my life looks like right now. You know, we, we, we sang Deliver a little bit ago, and there's that line that just hits me every time of, like, if what's promised, I never see. 
I'm still walking with you. You're still walking with me. There's this idea of like, you know, God has promised healing and deliverance and, and no more sin, no more death, no more evil, no more suffering. But the reality is, is that we may not see that until new creation. But there's that, that hope that says, but regardless of that, I'm still walking with you. I'm still trusting you. I'm still following you. I'm still, and so there's, this is what James is talking about, that hope, that, that faith that endures in spite of what life is doing. You know, the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything or lacking nothing. Let perseverance like do its work because that's what some translations say, have its full effect or finish its work. It's working on you. It's doing something to you. And again, just the emphasis by James on this is a, there's a perspective here. There's a response here. His encouragement, his instruction to these first century Christians and to us is you have to let it. You have to let it. That there, there's a desired outcome of an enduring faith, a persevering faith. He talks about a, a, like a faith that's mature, a faith that's complete. But we don't get to the desired outcome. It doesn't just happen on accident. It doesn't just happen naturally. He says, when these things come up, when life happens, will you let it do something to you? I know you didn't choose it. I know you don't want it. I know like it wasn't your fault. Somebody else did it. Life just happened. But there's a way in which we can see it where it can have a positive impact. And specifically, right, he's, he's talked about you, so the faith that will endure, that will persevere, and eventually that leads you to a place that you're mature and complete. And in the context, it's a mature and a complete faith. Because like, whenever you become a follower of Jesus, you know, I put my faith in Jesus, maybe I prayed a prayer, or it's like, I don't know when exactly it happened, but I've been following him. That at some point, there's kind of like this defining line of like, I'm a Christian now, and I follow Jesus. Like, that is the starting point of faith, not the finishing line. It's like, so when we're like, okay, I'm a Christian now, I'm following Jesus, that's like this idea of like, I'm just, a, I'm just kind of, I'm a, I have baby faith right now. Like, I'm just a little, little toddler faith. Like, I've got some growing up to do. There's a maturing process. There's a, a completing process. There's, a, there's this big term that's been thrown around throughout church history and theological circles of sanctification. There's the, the transforming work by the Spirit that's happening in me. And James is like, actually, the hardships that you face in life are part of that process. Our faith needs to grow up because Jesus does instruct us in the gospel. He's like, I want you to have childlike faith. But there's a difference between childlike faith and childish faith. Childlike faith, a child is like wide-eyed, like I just trust you no matter what, whatever you say. It's going to be fun. Let's go. Wee, right? But childish is like I never, I, I've never matured past the maturity of a two-year-old. Okay, we're talking about faith, you guys, not life in general. But, you know, just saying, you can apply that however you want. Sorry. But right, this faith's got to grow. It's got to mature. And so James, this, as he opens up this letter, and then, like James gets really, really practical with like life as a Christian and following Jesus and like here's some things that you need to do, but it's just interesting that he opens it up by saying, hey, it's not gonna be easy, but that's okay, it's part of the process. If you want big, bold, active faith, a trust in Jesus, a faith that makes a real difference in real life, then you walk through trials with joy. And having joy in the testing does not mean we go out looking for it. It's not like, man, I want my faith to grow. How can I go blow up my life? This is going to be great. Like, like, listen, there is enough unavoidable pain in life. The, the more that we can avoid by making wise choices, the better. So it's not like, hey, go try to ruin some things. It's like, no, life is going to, we're in a broken world. There's pain, there's suffering. It's not that we go looking for trials. It's not that we even pretend that they're pleasant. Because sometimes I think that's what we're like, oh, consider it great joy. I got to fake it. And that's not the instruction either. You know, sometimes we're like, man, life is terrible. I'm going through so much and everything's falling apart. And then we come to a place like this and we come to church and we're carrying all that from the week. But as soon as we come in the door, we're like, hey, 
Everyone's like, oh, how are you? I'm so blessed, brother. Right? And it's just like, no, like, like and, and maybe like, there's a, you, can, you can say that authentically, or you can say that in just trying to hide and push down and bury what you're actually going through. That's not the instruction either. I mean, here's a great, like, like if you, if you want to, like, have this come to the surface, read through the, the book of Psalms sometime. Like, the psalmist, are just, it's the whole gamut of emotions, and so much of it is, is from King David, and he's just, like, pouring out his heart to God. And some of them, things are great, and things are wonderful, and God, you're awesome. And sometimes it's David, like, I hate my life. My enemies are all around me. God, why have you left me? Everything's falling apart. Just kill me now, right? Like, sometimes, like, that's because that's just where he is. But he gets to the end of it, and he's like, and yet, I will praise the Lord. And yet, he, he is my rock. He is my fortress. And yet, like, and, and I, will, I will sing of his marvelous work. Like, and there's just always this and yet. And so, like, that's what James invites us into. You can consider it pure joy. You can be completely real with my life is hard right now, and it is awful right now. And you don't have to cover that up. But yet, there's a way in which you can see it, in which God is doing something in and through it, and I'm relying on his faithfulness. And here, here's the thing. We've been talking in the series about having really big faith, like growing that faith, right? And um, you know when you meet someone like that? It's like you know lots of people, like I know a lot of Christians, and they're, they're wonderful, and they love God, and, that, and that's great. But then sometimes you meet those people like, yeah, but there's just something different about this person. It's like their faith in Jesus, like it is so real to them. And it affects everything about their life and the way that they think and the words that they speak and the way that they go about life. And you're like, wow. I guarantee you, if you would sit down with a cup for a cup of coffee with that person, you'd say, tell me your story. How did you go from where you were to where you are now? I guarantee you that you, you will hear some things about a faith that's been tested. You'll, you'll hear a story that says, you know what, like I, I've been through some stuff and God has walked me through that. Because wrinkle-free days do not produce great faith. And I want to say something and I want to preface this first by saying, and I recognize that some of you are going through some really difficult circumstances and situations, and it's real. And I, I don't want you to hear me minimizing what you're going through. I'm going to make a, a very broad, general statement, uh, and so I'm not specifically talking to you. But wrinkle-free days don't produce great faith. This is one of, I think, the leading things behind why the like, American church is so anemic, why it's so weak, why there's no power, because the reality is, is that we've had a lot of wrinkle-free days in American Christianity. It's just like life is comfortable and life is good and we are well fed and we got roofs over our heads. And I mean, like, we have everything we could ever want to the point where it's like, do I really rely on God for anything? Like there's just this thing. Like I think about like our brothers and sisters throughout history and around much of the world today and it's just like, I've got so much. And my life comparatively is so easy. It's like, I, I don't, I'm not worried about where I'm going to bed tonight or what I'm going to wear, if, what, where my next meal, I know you better believe I know where my next meal is coming from, the next several. It, you know, if I get sick, we've got modern medicine, we've got these kind of things, and it's just like, you know, there's something about that, as good as it is, and as much of a blessing as that is, where sometimes it's like, I don't know that, that I actually rely on God for much. And so there's this idea that when, when life is so easy and our faith is wrinkle-free, it's not always a good thing. Um, we don't actually know what we we, we, we don't know what we actually believe until what we claim to believe has been tested. Right? It's like, man, I believe in Jesus and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he loves me and he's died for me and he's got resurrection hope for me and, and I believe he's going to heal. And I believe all these things and it's great to believe those things and you should and you should press into that. But when push comes to shove, when the rubber meets, like we don't know until life comes knocking. Well, you claim to believe in Jesus? Let's find out. You say he's good and he loves you and he died for you and there's a hope and there's a resurrection and cancer comes knocking. 
where addiction comes knocking, and depression comes knocking, and betrayal comes knocking, and divorce comes knocking, and financial hardship comes knocking. And all of a sudden, it's like, there's what I say I believe, but now I'm about to find out, do I? At the end of the day, though, and as painful as that is, it's, it's something comes for all of us in those regards. But a faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. So when those things come knocking and I go through that and we get to the other side of that, I know I actually do believe this. And Jesus is real to me. And this is my life. And he has been faithful through all of it. Faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. And so James is like, I know it's hard, but consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. It's doing something. It's working something out in you. So that's kind of like the baseline idea. I just want to give uh, an example of this from Scripture. I want to look at one particular person. This shows up all over the Scriptures. This shows up all over the New Testament of how when people go through something, what their faith in God looks like on the other side of it. One particular example we're going to look at this morning is uh, the Apostle Peter. Um, so Peter, pretty well known, he has a pretty dramatic story from the time that Jesus calls Peter, who Peter is, like when he's first called to who Peter is when he dies, it's like he's a completely different person. Um, one very, very kind of dramatic moment is on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed, uh, he's going to be uh, betrayed and arrested and crucified, and it's Jesus kind of last time talking, addressing the group of disciples, uh, and he says this very, very direct thing to Peter. This is found in Luke's gospel. Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, and Simon's just another name for Peter, um, look out, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, or wheat, um, look out, and it's like, that, that sounds intense, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and you're like, I don't really know what that means, <laughs> but it doesn't sound good, there, there's a little bit of a debate um, among scholars about what exactly that means, like, what's the exact meaning of that, but it's something along the lines of, hey, Satan is seeking to shake you so hard that you fall. Because that's what you would do to wheat, to separate the wheat and the chaff. It's like you just, you violently shake it. So here's the picture. Satan wants to come and take you and just, and see what happens. Don't laugh at me. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I promise I'm shaking, not like this. These are not my dance moves. I don't have those either. But like, he's like, this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to come and just shake you and shake you and shake you. And we're going to see where we're at at the end of that. Uh, and the, the you here, Satan has um, asked to sh- uh, shake you like wheat, is actually plural. And so Jesus is talking to Peter, but he's talking about all the disciples. And so by extension, he's talking about the disciples who were there with Peter. He's also talking about his disciples today as well, you and me, if we're followers of Jesus. You, you better believe there's an enemy, and you better believe there are opportunities when it's a broken world, and he would love nothing more than to just shake you and just see what happens. A rough action that causes you to fall. And so he's, he's looking at his guys who he loves and says, it's going to get difficult. It's going to get hard. There's a test coming, especially for you, Peter, as he kind of drills down on that in the next verse. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so where the you was plural, the verse before, talking to all of the disciples, now it turns to singular. Now, Peter, now I'm talking to you. The shaking's coming for all of you. It's going to get really hard for you. Peter, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. It would be a great thing to hear by Jesus. Like, oh, thanks, man. Thanks for praying for me. Did you pray that I wouldn't have to go through that? Did you, you tell Satan what's up? Like, Mm-mm, you can't have Peter. And uh, Jesus is like, no. I pray that you make it through, though. I pray that you get through the other side of it. I'm, I'm not praying that it won't happen, but I'm praying that your trust in me, your confidence in me will endure, that your faith will not fail. 
And, and then he, he also says that Peter on the other side of it. And that's, that's a really hopeful thing, is that like on there, there is something on the other side of it. Jesus can see what Peter doesn't see yet and says, I have, on the other side of this, this trial, on the other side of the shaking, on this, this next season, I have something for you. And we kind of love like the, the, the redemption story of Peter, and he's restored, and he becomes a leader in the church. But I think one of the things that we often forget is, I don't know that Peter would be who he was if he hadn't gone through what he went through. And so it's like, Peter, I'm not going to take this from you because what, what you are going to learn in this, this situation, this experience is going to prepare you for what I have for you next. And Peter, being Peter and usually just like, what? Cool. Says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Like, bring it on. I'm on team Jesus. Nothing can stop us. Like, here we go. Peter thought he was ready. Peter was wrong. Peter thought his faith was solid, but his faith hadn't been tested yet. Not in this way. There had been tests for the disciples, but the thing is, like, during those testings, like, Jesus was always there. He was always there for them to kind of fall back. I'm like, okay, he's with us. Okay, we're good, we're good. And Jesus was like, oh, you little faith. And, but this time's going to be different. Because for Peter and the rest of the disciples, it's going to seem like he's gone. He's died. He's, he's not coming back. And when Peter's faith was tested that night, he failed the test. And all of the disciples did, actually. They all scatter. They're all afraid. They all go into hiding. They have zero faith in Jesus, but Peter's story gets kind of highlighted and put front and center in the Gospels, where he denies even knowing Jesus three different times. Like, aren't you one of his followers? Don't you know him? Never heard of him. I don't know him. Get away from me. You're crazy. Which one of the times the people that ask Peter this is like, like a 13-year-old girl. And so Peter's like, no! Ah! Right? Just completely denies even knowing him. Failed the test. Watch Jesus be crucified, and he runs off and hides, fails another test. And yet, after the crucifixion, and Jesus rises from the dead, he finds Peter, and he restores him. But I know you've been through something difficult. I'm not done with you yet. He puts him in charge of, like, the church. Like Peter is, like, the point person in the early days of the church. And about two months later, two months after, you know, the, the crucifixion, resurrection, two months after Peter denying Jesus, we see Peter and John leading the church, uh, and they heal a guy who, who couldn't walk. This guy had been outside the temple uh, begging, and, and he's like, hey, you guys give me some money? And so this guy would have been there every single day, so people around the temple would have known him. And they're like, we don't have any money, but stand up and walk. And the guy gets up, and he starts walking. And this causes a huge disturbance in and around the temple because everyone knew this guy's begging every day. He can't walk, and now he's walking around. The religious leaders don't like that so much, so they have um, Peter and John thrown into prison, and now they're in the midst of another test. Next morning, they're brought be before um, high priest. So Annas and, Annas and Caiaphas, these are the, the guys that were actually like responsible for kind of trumping up the charges against Jesus and, 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 and riling up the crowds and, and kind of colluding with the Roman Empire to have Jesus killed. These are the two people that, that represent kind of religious corruption that had Jesus crucified. And now here Peter and John are standing before them. And they ask them this question. By what power or in what name have you done this? This guy's been healed. Everybody sees it. We can't deny it. How'd this happen? By what name? And it's almost like a replaying of what had happened two months before. Do you know this Jesus? And Peter denies him. Now it's like, wait, what's, what's going to happen now? What will Peter do this time? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of the elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you guys want to know how this happened? Jesus is how this happened. And I, 
Peter just goes a step further. He's like, oh, and I'm not done, right? He's just going to, he's so bold with this. He's like, I'll tell you who did this. Jesus did this. But wait, there's more. The Jesus whom you crucified. This is not like a broad, like, well, you know, we cru- our sins crucified him, which is true. No, he's actually looking at the thing. You did this. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. By him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is, and this, this would have been so insulting to them because he's going to, he's quoting, he's going to quote them a verse from the Old Testament, the scriptures that they were familiar with, that they prided themselves on. They're the religious leaders that they would have known, and he makes them the villain in this passage. They're like, what, what, what? This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated, untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they'd been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? An obvious sign has been done through them. It's clear to everyone living in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. They're like, we've got to stop this Jesus thing. It's spreading like wildfire. We've got to put an end to this. And so they, they called uh, them back in, Peter and John, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, hey, whether it's right, in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than him, you decide. But for us, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. You want us to stop talking about Jesus? Sorry, can't do that. And I don't care what you threaten us with, and I don't care what you do to us. I will not stop speaking about Jesus. I will not stop proclaiming that, that he has died for sins, that you killed him, that God raised him, that he's, been, uh, that he's been seen, and God is inviting all people being drawn to himself through the person of Jesus. We will not shut up about this, and I don't care how much you threaten us because my faith, my confidence, my trust in him is strong because I've been through some stuff, and he's been with me through all of it. And I saw him crucified, and I saw him alive again. In the course of two months, Peter's faith goes from weak, I don't even know Jesus, uh, who is this guy, get him away from me, to massively strong, standing in front of the very people who had Jesus crucified. How did it happen? It happened through the testing. It happened through the pain. It happened through the trial. Peter ends up becoming um, a leader in the early church. How? Through the testing. He would continue to, to face testing and trials, and his faith would continue to grow. In fact, the more testing and the more hardships that Peter faced, and not just Peter, but all of the apostles, all of the earliest followers of Jesus, it's like the worse things got for them and the harder things got for them and the more times they were thrown into prison and the more times they were persecuted and the more of them that were killed for their faith, their faith just got stronger and stronger and bigger and bolder to the point where uh, Peter was killed for his faith. He was crucified under Emperor Nero. Tradition tells us that he actually requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way as his Lord. And so just picture this, just facing certain pain and certain death. He's like, my faith in Jesus, my confidence in who he is and his love for me and his goodness is so strong in this moment, even though I know you're about to kill me, could you please do it upside down? Because he's way too awesome for me to die like him. I know I'm going to die. I know it's going to be the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't phase me. Because what is in store for me is so much greater than anything you could possibly do to me. So bring it on. I trust in Jesus. 
Peter had a faith that had been tested over and over and over and over again. And in the early days, it failed. (laughs) But the more the testing came, the stronger the faith became. In the words of James, the testing of his faith brought about an enduring faith that brought him to maturity. It brought him to completeness. It's in the testing that our faith matures because a faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. And what was true in James' day, what was true for Peter, remains true today. If you're a follower of Jesus, the trials will come. The testing will come. Because we, we live in just a broken and fallen world. Again, it doesn't matter what someone believes. Like, life will happen to all of us. And the question is, what do we do with that? And sometimes, sometimes like, life happens and our faith is tested because of, you know, dumb things that we do. Let's just be honest. Right? Sometimes the test is... I have these two options. Which one should I choose? And I failed the test, and now I'm like, oh, crap. Like, I'm in, in trouble now, and then I'm tested again. Sometimes testing happens in, in really good things. And sometimes that's a test of I my mean, life is so good right now. Will I rely on what I have or the God who gave it? But most often, the testing comes in those moments of life is hard, and bad stuff happens to good people, as is often said. But in the midst of this, will I trust in his goodness? Will I trust in the goodness and the love of God that's been revealed through the person of Jesus? The question becomes, again, back to what James had said, how do we respond? What is the perspective? Do I consider it great joy? Do I let it finish its work? Because those moments, the pivotal circumstances, have the potential to either completely undermine and destroy our faith, or they have the potential to make our faith explode. The same circumstance can have polar opposite effects. It's interesting. I've you know, heard stories, and maybe you have too, and like talked to people. It's like, have gone through like eerily similar situations, gone through almost the exact same thing. One person comes out on the other side and says, I don't, I don't believe any of this church stuff, God stuff, Jesus stuff, faith stuff anymore. And the other person comes out on the other side and says, my, my connection, my love, like the, I, I know the goodness and the love of Jesus in a way that I've never known it before. My faith is so strong. It's like, how do, how do we get those two different things? The question often comes down to, like, what makes the difference is what we've done up until the point of the testing. Because when we find ourselves in the moment of pain and testing, it's like, that's not the moment to decide, I think I'm going to, you know, have the right perspective. It's something that's built over the long haul. In fact, of the five things that grow, um, that grow our faith, right, this is really the only one, the pivotal circumstances is the only one that's actually, like, out of our control that we don't choose. It just kind of happens to us. The first four, it's like I can put myself in an environment where there's you know, personal or practical teaching. I can, I can you know, give myself and serve people in Jesus' name and experience him using me. I can surround myself with people who will walk with me through life and speak God's truth into me. I can engage in spiritual disciplines and grow closer to God. This one, this one's just like, it just happens. Life just happens to us. And in many ways, what a pivotal circumstance does to our faith is often determined by what we did with these four before the last one comes. Because when we're putting ourselves in those kind of environments where I'm like, I'm knowing the truth of God and the goodness of Jesus and, and the truth of the Christian faith, it's like, I mean, it's built around a cross where the worst thing happened to the best person. I'm like, that shapes how I see the world and the brokenness of things. And I've experienced uh, you know, God working and moving in me and through me. And, and I've got people who maybe have been through the same thing that I'm going through who are walking with me, who are speaking life into me and telling me about what God did in their life through it and are reminding me of who I am and what's true. And I'm, I've been engaged in spiritual discipline, so I have a personal connection with God. And when all of that stacks up and then life happens, I can consider it great joy because I know that God can use it 
because he's proven himself faithful over and over and over. Disruption and pain and suffering are unavoidable. In fact, in this world, it, it seems like many times it's more the, the rule rather than the exception. It just is. But when it's viewed through the right lens, it has the potential to strengthen and grow our faith. And I'm not saying that's easy. And I'm not saying that I'm there yet. And I'm not trying to minimize what you're going through. This is a lifetime process. That that over time, through the working of the Holy Spirit, him shaping us and changing us and transforming us, that we get to a place where I can go, I can consider this pure joy. Great joy. Not because it's pleasant, but because God can use it. And there's this tension that we walk in then of absolutely we believe that our God heals, we believe that he changes things, we believe that things get better, so we pray for healing and we pray for deliverance and we pray for restoration and we pray for financial situations and we pray for career stuff. When stuff comes up, we pray like crazy. And God may change our situation, but he may not. That as I'm praying that God would change something, I'm also trusting that he can use it no matter what happens. And so we're going to kind of wrap things up, but this is just my encouragement for us as we go through life and we face the difficulties and we, we want to go to God with those things, just have this simple posture of God, I pray that you will remove this, but I trust that no matter what, you can use this. Pray that you'll remove this, but I trust that you're going to use it and you're going to do something through it. We, we, model, I mean, we model that after our King and our Savior, Jesus, praying in the garden, God, remove this. If there's any other way, remove this cup from me, but I'm trusting in you trusting that you're going to do something with it. So we come with that same kind of posture. God, remove this, heal this, do this, but no matter what, I trust that you can use this for my good. And so that is, that's our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God, that we can trust you. We can trust in your goodness. We can trust in your love, not just because it's, it's, it's hopeful optimism and not just because we read about it or someone told us about it, but because of something that has happened, that you have revealed yourself person of Jesus, that God incarnate, Jesus, you came, you walked among us, you, you lived, you died in the worst way imaginable, bearing the weight of all the sin and all the shame and all the evil of, of all of existence. And you did that because you love us. You rose from the dead, defeating sin and death for good. And so we, we put our trust in that. We put our hope in that even when life is falling apart. God, I pray that you would create that kind of faith in us. Faith that says, in spite of everything going on around me, we're holding to you and you are good. God, I pray specifically just for the people who are, who are in this room, the people who are watching this, that are going through some seriously difficult situations. God, we pray, I pray healing over people, over health concerns. I pray for deliverance over sin and shame, depression. God, I pray that addictions would be broken. I pray that relationships would be restored. God, I pray that people would experience the power of your healing and your peace and your presence. God, we believe that you are a God who does those things. God, we trust. We trust that no matter what happens, no matter what difficulties we face in this world, that you are good, that you love us. I pray in those moments when we find that hard to believe that your spirit would remind us, that your church around us would remind us. We pray this in Jesus' name.